You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Legal podcasts always have caveats, so here is ours. Today's moderators are national security attorneys who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. Join us at one of our monthly speaker programs or at our annual review conference on November 1st and 2nd to hear more about what's happening today and what will happen tomorrow on these issues. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topics at AmericanBar.org NetSecurity or in the notes to this podcast. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org, on Twitter at ABANatSec, or on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. Today we continue our conversation with Elisa Massimino of the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. Please go back and listen to last week's episode for part one of our conversation where we talk about her path to a human rights law career. Earlier this year, we had John Rizzo, who was formerly of the General Counsel's Office at the CIA, on, and he talked some about the idea that in the wake of 9-11, they authorized enhanced interrogation techniques, torture against suspected terrorists because of the fear of further attacks and how that played a role in their process of forwarding this up and up the chain until it finally became policy. And I guess the question is, I think um, even leaders are human beings and human beings can become afraid. And this was obviously an enormous kinetic attack on the United States that resulted in the death of, you know, 3,000 more people. Um, And I think in the wake of that, there was a concern that, you know, when is it going to stop? What more is going to happen? So I wonder, just based on your observations and thoughts over the years, if you or Human Rights First have thought about the possibility that, you know, reasonable people afraid of something that is real, palpable, based on evidence, can find themselves making decisions that deviate from these these standards and how we address the role of reasonable fear in those circumstances to make sure that we stay true to our identity as Americans? Well, it's a really good question, and and I applaud uh, John for being honest about that uh, because uh, it was quite clear that fear was a motivator for a lot of the policies that took us over to the dark side as a Dick Cheney called it. You know, George Tennant talked about that in his book about, you know, you have to understand the fear that we had and the and the sense of, um, you know, being caught unprepared and not knowing a lot about the enemy. And so being highly susceptible to suggestions from all over the place that were not grounded in you know, the expertise of interrogators and people who had spent, you know, their lifetime, uh, lifetimes devoted to the, the art and science of, um, of eliciting actionable intelligence from dangerous people. Instead, you know, we, 
as a country kind of freaked out. And when in moments like that, it really it really shows you why um, the importance of personal leadership, um, the importance of lawyers actually, because there was there, one of the first things I worked on when I started at uh, Human Rights First in 1991 was ratification of the Convention Against Torture. And uh, and that took several years because some people on the Hill, you have to, in, in order to become a party to that treaty, states have to um, uh, criminalize torture in their domestic law. Correct me if I'm wrong, it was over the course of three administrations as well. It was a long, arduous process getting UNCAD. It was, actually. it was. The last piece of it was getting this piece of legislation mm -hmm. passed that would make torture a crime. And, uh, 18 U.S. Code. And that took a long time because there were uh, members of Congress who wanted to attach the death penalty as a punishment for torture if someone dies under torture. And many of the groups uh, who were really leading the campaign for passage of this legislation had policies against the death penalty, so could not, you know, so it was this back and forth, back and forth. And we finally got it um, enacted without the death penalty. But then six months later, when no one was looking, it's, it's back in there. If you if you look up the the uh, criminal statute on torture, you'll find that there's the punishment of the death penalty, the possibility of the death penalty. Um, but uh, there's an excellent op-ed that uh, the two retired Marine Corps generals who led our effort against torture uh, had in the Washington Post in 2007, I think it was, about this very subject, at least the about the role of fear, and it's I think it was called it's our cage too or something like that. But essentially, General Chuck Krulak, former commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, General Joe Hoare, who was the uh, um, general in charge of CENTCOM, uh, authored this together, and they said, you know, we know about fear. We've served in combat. We know what fear does to people, and to and and it's a terrible advisor. That's why you know when you know when things hit the fan, <laughs> you don't. You really have to have people who are able to put that aside, or you know a team that can together uh, refer to the moral center as you know some kind of uh, guardrails against um, acting outside of, you know, our values. But fear, it just destroys that. It's so powerful. And it makes people and nations act in ways that are inconsistent with their, with their values. And, and so that's why when something like 9-11 happens, you, you actually, thinking outside the box is not there's some ways in which you want to think outside the box, but there are, there is a box outside of which you should not think. <laughs> so you should cleave to existing standards yes. and, and norms, even in the face of this daunting fear yes. one. And I heard you say something else that really jumped out at me, which is also the importance of, of going to the people who have the skill set to, for example, conduct peaceful interrogations and have a track record of eliciting useful information, know how to build rapport, and yeah. in particular with people who come from other cultures, and in this case, some of which may be hostile to us or differ, 
um, you should go back to those resources rather than you know just offering contracts and opportunities people really don't have a track record of performance uh, with adherence to standards exactly. in this area and really haven't dem- haven't demonstrated success quite frankly that is not where you should be casting your right. your resources and your lot I, I was stunned because of course I you know what did I know about interrogation it's not my field I didn't know anything about it in fact that's how we got uh, involved with speaking to the retired military and professional interrogators because we thought, and this was somewhat risky for a human rights organization, you know, the government leadership is telling the American public that torture is, they weren't calling it torture, but torture is necessary to save American lives and it's working. And And, and this president has repeated that. Yes. More Uh, than once, actually. And not that he has any experience in this area, but that's his opinion as an outsider, and I suspect that's an opinion shared by a lot of people who've just never really had to deal with it. Right. They've seen it on TV. It always works. During that period of time, there was a show called 24, which was essentially a, you know, oh, yes. a, 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 an hour-long advertisement for torture that was watched by 15 million Americans every week. It was the most popular show in Congress, um, and it was widely watched outside of the United States, including in the Middle East. So think about that. You know, we, we actually had a bunch of interns uh, during that period who watched over the summer thousands of hours of television and logged the, the instances of, of torture in a bunch of different shows. And we talked to the Parents Television Council about, you know, looking historically at what has changed. Because the power of popular culture is just, it's so profound as parent of you know, three young adults. I know <laughs> the power of popular culture. And, you know, before 9-11, there were just a handful of instances of, of depictions of torture on television. And it was always the bad guys, quote-unquote, doing it to Americans, and it never right. worked. The Bond villains of the world, Exactly. Right? And after <laughs> 9-11, that completely flipped. And it spiked so high, it was in the hundreds. And the good guys started doing it, and it always saved the day. For the purpo- yeah, for the purpose of mm. saving. So I, yeah. I can see exactly what you're saying. Um, and how would we as lawyers, for example, reorient and re-educate a public and leaders on the fact that, you know, you're not a terrible person for seeing this on television or hearing this or thinking um, that maybe this would work, but the truth is it doesn't. Right. And how do we educate them without judging them so harshly that they dig in? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I think the key to that and what we tried to do was not lecture people from the perspective of a human rights organization, you know, that this is bad and you're bad for wanting to do it. And, you know, we we actually honestly wanted to know the answer to that question, and we didn't know the answer. Does it work? And that might seem like an odd question for a human rights group to ask because, of course, it's illegal and immoral, and we would be against it even if it did. Mm-hmm. And we've prosecuted it. Let's be yes. frank. I mean, we have prosecuted <coughs> Japanese people, uh, military personnel, who waterboarded our exactly. our soldiers at the end of World War II as torture and yes. war torture. This was never really a question. And so we, we asked that question, and, and we found that the... the people who had decades of experience in interrogation said, this is amateur hour. This is not how you get actionable intelligence. In fact, one 
a guy who uh, worked very closely with us said, look, you know, when you ask the question, does torture work, it kind of depends on what you mean by that. As an interrogator, I could, you know, inflict pain on someone and gain compliance. So if I ask him, where's the safe house? And I, you know, inflict pain on him and he tells me where the safe house is. Does Whether that, or not he knows it. Does that, does that, and, the, and it's a true, and it's true. What he tells me is the address of the safe house. Is, does that mean that torture works? Because when I send all of my people there to the safe house and it's booby-trapped and they all die, does that mean that torture worked? If I use a rapport-based approach to interrogation and I gain the respect, if not the trust, of the subject, he tells me not only where it is, but that it's booby-trapped and Be here's how you uh, will know and all of that. You know, so it's um, cooperation, not compliance. You know, it's, when, we, when we're not talking about television drama, but real-life American men and women who are going to be put in harm's way ba based on the intelligence that we gain, um, then you, you have to get cooperation. And there are people who know how to do that. It's a, it, you know, and, and they were sitting by the phone after 9-11 waiting. I talked to them and they said, I expected a call. This is the time that your skill is really going to be needed. And no one ever called. Instead, as you said, Elisa, they brought in these, you know, consultants and people who had crazy ideas but no experience and paid them millions and millions, millions of and dollars millions, right? to end up leading us down a path that the Senate Intelligence Committee found uh, not only did not produce useful intelligence, but probably ended up costing us um, intelligence, money, and lives. I do wonder um, if you have any thoughts on where the United States could go right now you know, just let's we, we're dealing with everybody that we have presently in office the circumstances that we have um, to sort of turn around right now what is the public sentiment on this push out education maybe even educate leaders who are very well intending perhaps but have taken a position that is ultimately not sustainable and may in time diminish the national security of the United States and certainly its uh, reputational standing globally. What are what are a few sort of policy changes, legal changes? Recommendations. Recommendations. Yeah. Um, well, one thing uh, we, we haven't talked about that I, I also think is a security issue, but not in the way that most people think about it, is the refugee crisis, um, the global refugee crisis. You know, people, I, I just came, like, right before I came here this afternoon, I had the opportunity to go through this amazing um, virtual reality exhibit um, called Carne y Arena, which is over on H Street. It, it, I really strongly recommend that everybody see it, and I wish we could require members of Congress and uh, Kristen Nielsen to see it um, from DHS. It is uh, done by an Academy Award-winning director, Enrique. Uh, it's truly amazing. But the most people think about the security implications of immigration and refugees as how do we keep dangerous people out at the border? You know, and that's certainly one way of thinking about it, and we do want to keep dangerous people out at the border. Um, but the, the flip side of that is that 
failure to address the, and to lead, I would argue, on the part of the United States, um, the global refugee crisis, uh, which is you know the largest refugee crisis since World War II. Um, tens and tens of millions of people on the move, fleeing war, fleeing instability, including in our own hemisphere, um, that that creates a national security problem for us. Uh, it destabilizes our allies. Uh, it provides rich uh, recruit, recruiting uh, opportunities for our enemies. Um, and I would argue that, that the United States, under this administration uh, in particular, but not only, is really taking a short-term view of, of what could be a, a long-term national security problem for us. And that is why so many national security experts from both parties who have served in you know, administrations going back a very long time have joined together to say, this is the wrong approach. This is, this is not only is it inhumane and, and violates our fundamental values, but it is creating a national security problem for the United States to fail to deal with the refugee crisis. So I would put that and high up on the list. can you articulate that more particularly? Because I think a lot of people might hear that and say, well, you've mentioned that it's, it provides a rich recruitment um, opportunity for extremists and recruiters to find disenfranchised, in particular, young men who may be in refugee groups and don't have the opportunity to find work, um, but what else? Well, so I think that the, you know, the world looks to the United States for leadership. That's just how, you know, it works. And that's the, the benefits and burdens of, of being the most powerful country. Um, and the UN is struggling to deal with how to, you know, how to address the, the, the refugee crisis having a multifaceted strategy that looks at the root causes, the immediate humanitarian problems, how to support those countries, particularly around Syria, who are bearing the brunt of the refugee crisis. The fact that the U.S. has admitted so few Syrian refugees, we're not going to be the, you know, we can't solve the refugee crisis in the United States by taking in all the Syrian refugees. No one's arguing that. But the abdication of leadership by demonstrating, you know, that there is a plan and a way forward. This is what we did, the U.S. did with the Vietnamese refugees, you know, came forward and said to the rest of the world, look, we've got a problem here. It affects uh, not just one country, and here's a comprehensive plan for how to deal with it. And we'll take our fair share, but, you know, we're going to make sure that there's adequate screening of people. We'll help you with your screening because we, you know, the U.S. has far more sophisticated screening systems than even, say, Europe. And to just put that forward, there's so much that we mm -hmm. could be doing to address these problems that we are just not doing. Um, yeah, and I would, I would just play, I'm not trying to, to necessarily play devil's advocate here, but I think the situation with Vietnam was sort of focused on one country. Um, and, uh, you know, the need for evacuation to occur um, as that country fell. But uh, I think right now, you would you agree that it's multiple countries? Um, many of these immigrants aren't coming from Syria at all. They're coming from uh, countries in North Africa, at least particularly into Spain and Italy presently. And these are multiple countries with multiple problems, not all of which can we really solve or address. 
and nor does it seem that we could stem the flow right now of these refugees that it just seems that this presents sort of a um I guess you'd say like a multi-theater problem. It certainly is very complex. Different. It's certainly complex. Although the situation with the Vietnamese was also complex, uh, this the current scenario includes you know refugees that have been in camps for decades, people who are fleeing Syria, um, people who are fleeing you know gang violence and just the failed states in Central America. Um, there, it's definitely a complex problem, no question. And there's no one solution to it. But that doesn't mean that there's not more that we could be doing. We've got to try something. In we, other words, we've got to try a few. We've got to try yes. something. We have to demonstrate you know, it's it, In the past, we've done this through a mix of a robust resettlement program. So we're bringing people who've already been screened into the United States. Not only is that good for those people, and also, I would argue, for our country because refugees bring skills and, you know, diversity and um, entrepreneurial spirit. I mean, the Syrians in particular right now, you know, if you were starting a country from scratch, these are the kind of people you would pick to be on your team. I mean, they're well-educated, they're ambitious. And so um, we've in the past, we've done a mix of that with a fair and open asylum system with a, you know, really engagement in the international community to encourage, pressure, help fund other countries to do their fair share. Nobody thinks the the U.S. should take all the refugees or solve all the problems. Like any of these problems, like terrorism, climate change, all these kinds of problems that are global, they impact everybody, and they require solutions that, um, that need us to cooperate. The refugee crisis is like that, too. Well, Elisa, I have to say, you um, we're glad that you've been a steward of these things low these many years, and I hope that will continue uh, while you are at Harvard. Um, so uh, let me leave you with this last question, then. What is the one thing that you would like the president and all of the current military leadership to continue uh, as they face this still-waging 16-year-long war fault of you know, being fought in two countries. Uh, They're looking at the specter of a rising China and Russian meddling at the very least, uh, although we're recording this on a day when the United Kingdom has identified actually two Russian individuals um, they believe to have been responsible for the poisoning of of people inside the UK. Um, What is the one thing that you would like the president uh, to be thinking about or to consider? Well, we're in a really a unique situation right now in this country. Uh, this is a president that um, that seems unmoored from our our founding principles as a country, and so that makes that a question like that really difficult. Um, but I guess you know if I had to pick one thing, just going back to the theme that we keep coming back to, the relationship between national security and and human rights, respect for for the inherent dignity of all people. Um, I I think we would be stronger and safer and more prosperous as a nation, um, the United States, uh, if we were to ground our policies in our values. So it's when we deviate from those 
uh, values of due process, respect for the rule of law, and, and respect for the inherent rights of all individuals, that we end up hurting ourselves. That's what I would hope the president could remember. Right. Elisa, it's been a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for your career in national security law and for your service to the United States, and I do consider that service to the United States. Thanks. We're privileged to have had you with us. I hope you'll return after you've been to Harvard to do another episode, uh, and that uh, we will ensure our listeners that we will hyperlink the documents you've referenced today. They're very important. Um, and we will also hyperlink uh, any testimony of Elisa um, on these topics for your availability. But uh, we look forward to speaking to you again. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for listening to the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tune in again soon for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff and pop vitamin D all day, <laughs> or you're just smart enough to know that national security law gives you a front row seat to history, and you do not want to sit on the sidelines or watch life from a distance, then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Because listening to a podcast is informative, but social networking isn't really networking, Show up at one of our breakfasts or lunches or conferences. And don't miss the annual review conference in Washington, D.C. on November 1st and 2nd. Check us out at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. And don't forget that every serious national security lawyer has one great book on their desk, the 2017 U.S. Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, available for purchase on our website. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.